Proverbs chapter 18. Let's begin reading in verse number 16. The Word of God says that a man's gift maketh room for him, and bringeth him before great men. He see that is first in his own cause seemeth just, but his neighbor cometh and searcheth him. The lock causeth contentions to cease, and parteth between the mighty. A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and their contentions are like the bars of a castle. A man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth, and with the increase of his lips shall he be filled. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Let's pray together. Lord, we love You and thank You for this time that You've given us. Pray that You'd bless the preaching of Your Word now for the next few moments. Speak to our hearts. Lord, we trust that You have a message and a truth for us this hour. And help us to have our hearts surrendered unto it for Your glory, for our good. Lord, we love You and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So throughout the book of Proverbs, we looked at these three or four instances of the the mention, the illustration of a strong city or a walled city. We began this morning by looking just a few verses prior to this. In verse 11, when Solomon said, "...the rich man's wealth is his strong city and has a high wall in his own conceit." This is a wall that must be broken down in a person's life if they're going to come to know the Lord as their Savior. For the rich man, it's his wealth. But it can be any number of things in a person's life. For some people, it's merely their pride. For some people, it's a relationship. For some people, it's their past. They can't get past their past and believe that God could love them, could save them. That thing becomes like a wall that is impenetrable in their life. and They sort of hide behind it, never facing the reality of Christ and, and Calvary and never coming to terms with the decision that they must make. I'm glad that the Lord can tear down those walls, aren't you? Hey, I wouldn't be saved if the Lord couldn't tear down those walls. You wouldn't be saved if the Lord couldn't tear down those walls. And then we looked over in chapter 25, and we looked at another type of wall found at the end of the passage. Uh, Really, it's the absence of a wall. Solomon says, "...he that hath no rule..." over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. You know, we said this morning that the wall is emblematic, is symbolic of the human will. And the human will is a part of our created condition. Our our free will is not a product of our depravity. Our depravity is a result of us exercising our free will in the wrong way. And, uh, or I guess we could say of Adam exercising his free will in the wrong way. And so, uh, the will is not a bad thing in and of itself. We need to have a will. We don't need to be self-willed, but we should be strong-willed in a scriptural way. And certainly, there are folks that suffer from a lack of willpower. Amen? They cannot, they have no discipline. They cannot say no to that which they desire. Uh, they cannot say no They had to the, the, the desires and lusts and impulses that they have. They could say no, but they can't do it in and of themselves. They're not naturally bent towards doing that. Without the Lord's help, they're not going to be able to do that. This is a wall that must be built in our lives. You can't live. Listen, a city won't stand without a wall if there are enemies pressing upon its boundaries and borders. It's got to have some protection. And a person that has no rule over their spirit has laid vulnerable to anything that might come into their life. 
And they, they'll take anything, any opportunity. They'll perform any uh, activity. They just have no willpower and they need willpower. How can they get it? Well, I like Solomon's answer. I believe we find it in verse 25. He says, as cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. We talked about the fact that water, every time in the Bible, it's, it's typically used in two ways in the Bible. Uh, it's used in the sense of washing something. And when it's used in the sense of washing something as a symbolism, uh, it's always representative of the Word of God. But every time it's used as a nourishing resource, every time it's used for a person to drink and to invigor themselves, it's always a picture of the Spirit of God. He's the fountain of living waters. Amen? And He is that spiritual water. And so, uh, I believe that what Solomon's saying here is this, a person that has no rule over their own spirit, that has no willpower, uh, that has no discipline, they're not going to get it just by willing it so. If, they're, if they had enough willpower to will themselves to have willpower, they would have never had a problem with willpower in the first place. You said, preacher, I didn't know it was going to be on a plane and a train and in a box with a fox. And <laughs> But there is truth there if you can unravel the thread. This is a wall that needs to be built. Every Christian needs to be governed uh, solely and only by the, uh, by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. And if the Spirit of God doesn't lead us, we don't have the ability to lead ourselves. There's a lot of folks that are running their head into a wall and a lot of folks that are running themselves into a ditch because they're just trying to will themselves to be fixed and better and righteous. And you cannot do it. It doesn't come through striving, brethren. It comes through surrender. Surrender to the leading of God's Spirit. And then in the verses that we've read this evening, I want you to notice one more wall that we'll say a few words about before we close. The Bible says in verse 19, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And their contentions are like the bars of a castle. If the wall that the rich man runs into, his wealth and his pride is a wall to be broken down, and if the wall that is lacking in the life of a person that has no willpower is a wall that is to be built, now, I would say this wall tonight represents to us a wall that needs to be breached in our relationship with other people. Solomon looked at those that had for good reason or not so good reason taken offense at the actions of another person. He uses the term brother. Now, you might say, well, what does he mean by brother? You ready? This is deep. Brother. That's what he means. The word literally has the, the meaning of a blood relation. But I believe that certainly it could extend to those of us that are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And it denotes somebody with a deep relationship and connectedness with another person. This is interesting because in the other two instances, you're always the city. You hear me? In the other two instances, the audience, the recipient to whom Solomon is pinning his verse, is always the city. They are always the person inside the city. They are always the one whose wall either needs to be torn down or built up. But now Solomon says that when we have offended someone, they themselves are like a strong city, like a walled city, 
like an impenetrable fortress. And the Bible says they are harder to be won. Let me point out a couple of very basic, simple thoughts that are found here. One, I would say this, that Solomon doesn't say anything about whose fault this offense is. He does not say if they're wrongly offended. He does not say if they're rightly offended. He merely says if they're offended. He merely states the condition of a person that feels as though they have been transgressed or trespassed against. Let me tell you something. I believe that we have a just God. Amen? And I, I believe that certainly we live in a society today where people are too ready and willing to apologize for things that they've not done wrong. And too many people are ready at the drop of a hat to take sort of a synthetic offense at things that they ain't really offended by, but they've just learned that there's a certain currency upon victimhood. But let me say this, that amongst the people of God, too often do we spend all of our time trying to unravel whose fault a matter is instead of trying to reconcile the situation. Let me tell you, there's such a thing as being right, and there's such a thing as being dead right. Hey, listen, if a person walks up to a crosswalk, and the crosswalk has given them a green sign, and they're allowed to walk right across, and they see a bus coming down the street, they can decide that in spite of whatever the consequences are, that light is green and it is their every right to walk out in front of that bus and they're still going to get run over. They're not only right, they're dead right. And so many times in our life we spend all of our time trying to prove and verify who's right in a matter, who was most at fault. And I feel like, if, if I can just say it simply, I feel like we'll waste a lot of time a lot of time trying to figure all that and prove all that, when often the matter is a lot simpler to handle if we just merely go in humility and contrition to somebody and ask their forgiveness, we could be done and over with it a lot sooner. He does not say whose fault it is that this person is offended. Let me notice, too, that he also makes it clear, and I'm going to do a little preaching on this at the end, But he makes it clear that it is the job of the offending, not of the offended, but of the offending to win the brother that's offended. You see, in the other instances, you're inside of the city. But in this one, you're outside of the city and you're trying to win or conquer the strong city. Let me say that oftentimes when someone is offended, if we don't feel like we have done anything worthy of them being offended, we have a tendency to sit back, cross our arms, and say, well, that's their problem and not mine. i got news for you. As a member of the body of Christ, as a blood-washed, born-again believer, born again by the grace of God, it is your problem. Now, let me say very clearly, that don't mean we can fix every problem. That doesn't mean that if a person is bound and determined to be offended, that we can somehow hogtie their will and force them to be okay or to accept our apology or whatever it might be. But I think a lot of times, and you see this all through society, this is a, this is a debate tactic to take what is the anomaly and, and use that as the, uh, as the rule. For instance, when they talk about abortion and they'll say, well, what about in the cases of rape and incest? I still believe it's murder even then. I do. Uh, you say, well, preacher, that's cruel. Not as cruel as wanting to kill the baby. That's even more cruel. 
And uh, they'll say, well, what about in those instances? And the desire is to get a conservative to say, oh, well, sure, in those instances. And then they use that because, you see, if you seed that life is not life from the moment of conception regardless of the circumstances, then you have seeded that life exists on a spectrum of value. And then it's just a matter of when we place the value points upon that life. If you seed that point, they've got you. Because if you seed that point and you take any line against it, then you are a hypocrite. And that's the idea. They'll say, even though rape and incest account for less than a percentage point of all abortions, they'll say, well, what about this? And then when you say, well, that's different, then they'll use that as though it's the standard. When the reality is what most of them want is abortion on demand all the time for any reason regardless. And that's the vast majority of abortions that take place in our country. We have a tendency sometimes to take the anomaly. And I say all that, one, because I think we ought to get every chance we can to hit abortion. But two, because it's, uh, it's illustrative of the fact that that is a debate, that is a, a, uh, an ideological and, and logical tool that has made its way even into the, uh, into the uh, language and, and ideology of believers. And they'll say, well, preacher, what if I've tried everything I can and I can't get through to them? What if I've tried everything I can and they won't forgive me? Well, then I believe you're guiltless. But have you tried everything you can? Thing a lot of times we say we have tried everything we can when we haven't. I think a lot of times what we really mean is if I did try everything I could, it wouldn't matter anyway, so I ain't going to try anything. I'm not going to try to, to get through to them at all. I'm not going to try to reconcile the situation at all because I know them and I know they wouldn't accept it anyway, so there ain't no use in it, so I give up. And isn't that awful convenient? alleviates us of the responsibility and of the humbling, the the humility that is required to go to a person and try to reconcile a situation. So Solomon says in this situation, he doesn't talk about whose fault it is, and he makes it clear that those of us that are not offended, that it is our responsibility to try to reconcile the situation. Now I want you to notice three thoughts very quickly tonight, and then we'll close. I want you to think with me for a moment. You know, we read more verses than just verse 19. And the reason is because, as we said this morning, don't divorce the text from the context. I believe that Solomon, if he didn't necessarily have a cohesive narrative, he certainly had certain thoughts on his heart and mind when he pinned these down. And so I believe that the verses before and after it are connected to. And I believe he gives some possible causes that this wall would be built up in the first place. I believe he gives us a hint at what are some things that can cause a person to be offended, right, wrong, or indifferent. Look back at verse 16. The Bible says this, A man's gift maketh room for him, and bringeth him before great men. Let me say that one of the things that can breed uh, offense in a relationship with someone that you love dearly is corruption. And let me couple with that another word. This isn't in my notes, but I'm going to put it in there. Also, covetousness. You know, the, the, the picture here that Solomon has is he's saying, this is going to sound carnal, but it's, it's scriptural truth. He's saying, hey, you know what? Sometimes bribery works. Read it again, verse 16. Don't look at me like a calf staring at a new gate. A man's gift maketh room for him and bringeth him before great men. That's bribery. He's saying, hey, you want to get somewhere, grease the skids a little bit. You want to get somewhere, it don't hurt to be to, to have a gift to give. Y'all learned that at a young age when you was carrying apples to your teacher. 
You aren't worried about keeping the doctor away. You're just worried about keeping the bad grades away. And I think that Solomon being a king, no doubt he had seen this take place over and over and over again. I think one of the things that he recognized is that when a person gets ahead in life, sometimes in an undue or unjust manner, it can breed covetousness and contempt in the heart and attitude of other people. Can I use this to make a simple statement? Oftentimes, people will be offended at things and we have no clue what it is that they're truly upset about. I have learned this in pastoring. You listen carefully? I have learned in pastoring that 99.9% of the time when a person leaves a church, they will never tell me, or you probably, what they're really leaving over. They'll always have an excuse. But rarely is it what they actually say that it is. Oftentimes, you have to look at the overall situation. You have to pray. You have to uh, seek to understand what it is. Because we just as human beings, oftentimes, childish as we are, we don't want to admit the real reason behind our offense. And you may find, I'm not, listen, I'm not trying to get folks to look for problems where there ain't no problems, but I am saying this, that I've learned in 10 years marriage that just because you say, are you all right? And just because they say, yeah, that don't mean everything's all right. Now, let me say on the other side, sometimes what's wrong is you talking and you'd be best to hush. But it is a reality that sometimes there can be something that someone is bothered by, upset about, disturbed by, and it's not what they say it is. Sometimes there's a hidden matter of the heart. And if nothing else, sometimes, and this is becoming more and more prevalent in society today, as there are entire political systems that are predicated on the concept of covetousness, the idea of you didn't earn that and it ought to belong to me and not you, oftentimes corruption, and with it covetousness, can be a cause for offense. Look at verse 17. He says this, "...he that is first in his own sight, or in his own cause, seemeth just..." But his neighbor cometh and searcheth him. I think another possibility of a cause of offense in a person's life can be conceit. Solomon says, I've noticed this, that the first one to show up to the dance gets to decide what song is played. But once other people start showing up, they have their opinion. And he's saying that if a person steps out and declares themselves in a matter... They're always going to seem like a trailblazer. They're always going to seem right because there's no one to speak against them. He said, but sooner or later, somebody's going to come along and search that thing out and oftentimes expose their pride. You know, Solomon elsewhere in the book Proverbs said this, that only by pride cometh contention. And you can mark her down that any time there's conflict, somebody's pride is involved somewhere. It may be the offending. It may be the offended. But pride is always at the heart of the matter. Then he gives, I think, a third illustration. In verse number 18, he says, The lot causeth contentions to cease, and parteth between the mighty. Casting lots was a common way of understanding, divining the will of God in the Old Testament. It was a way of trying to be impartial and let the providence of God decide in a matter. It would be similar to us today flipping a coin. And they weren't gambling necessarily. Now, there were times when people cast lots to gamble, but they were doing it to try to get an understanding of the mind of God 
in a matter. For instance, the Bible talks about even in the priesthood in the Old Testament that there was some means they had very similar to this of divining the will of God. Uh, it's mysterious. We don't understand everything about it, but the Bible calls it Urim and Tumim. And they evidently were stones kept in a pouch on the breastplate of the high priest. And somehow with these, he'd be able to cast lots and divine what the will of God is. And Solomon's saying this, that when there is a conflict, that oftentimes leaving it to God is the only way to reconcile it. Now, I want to back up a little bit and say this, the very conflict itself can oftentimes be a cause for offense. Listen, we live in a day today where folks have done forgot how to civilly disagree with one another. I mean, people don't, people just lose their minds if you disagree with them about anything whatsoever. We are talking in, in our Sunday school class this morning about that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And whenever they responded to Nebuchadnezzar, the first thing they said is, we are not careful to answer the O king in this matter. What they meant is basically this. We know what we're about to say is going to upset you. We just don't care. Amen? And one of the things that I was exhorting the Sunday school class about in standing against the wickedness of the day is just frankly, as believers, we've got to grow comfortable with being in the ideological minority. We've got to grow comfortable with the fact that the vast majority of people, if you're a Bible believer, the vast majority of people are going to disagree with you. But we live in a society today that's forgot how to civilly disagree with one another. And so conflict, by the very nature of conflict, is enough to offend some people. Let me say that conflict and offense don't always have to go hand in hand. People can disagree without being offended. I know that's strange to us today because we never see it. But people can disagree without being offended by it. But oftentimes people will be offended by the very fact that you would dare to disagree with them. Now there's a lot of illustrations. There's a lot of things we could talk about. But I see those few in the text as causes of this wall. And then look, notice carefully what Solomon says about this wall in verse 19. He says, a brother offended is harder to be won, and he says two things, than a strong city. And their contentions are like the bars of a castle. I want to say a word very quickly about the confinement of this wall. I think we all understand that a wall, by its very nature, is meant to do two things. It's meant to keep some things in, and it's meant to keep some things out. That's the nature of it. It's funny because uh, every time the immigration thing comes up and people start talking about it, there's always somebody, and, and they say it like this is just the, the epitome of profundity, like they are the first person to ever think of this. They'll say, well, you know, we ought to be building bridges and not walls. Can I tell you the problem with that? Bridges don't keep people out. The very idea of the, and I understand what they mean. I understand what they're getting at. I understand that they're saying, well, we ought, we ought to be welcoming to all people and this, that, and the other. But you understand that just by saying that cute saying, that does nothing to win the other side to your argument because all you're doing is reaffirming that your goal and their goal are polar opposites. Instead of saying in your mind, well, this is why I think it wouldn't be effective or this, that, that you're saying, actually, I want the exact opposite of what you do. That don't get you any closer to any kind of reconciliation, amen? That's that's a lot of what's broken about our politics, too, is the fact that there's no desire to find any reconciliation on these matters. Instead, just stir each other's base up, sit on other sides and throw rocks at each other. Then go back home and say, see, I'm a fighter, and the only people getting richer in all of it is them. 
That's all right. Me and Linda will preach about this for a little bit. I'll let you know when I'm done preaching about it, and you can turn the hearing aid back on. But me and Linda will have a good time preaching about this. Only person getting richer in all this is them. Ain't nobody else getting helped by it, just them. The lawyers, yeah. Bill, I can't go down that road. We'll be here till midnight. It'll be like Eutychus. You'll be falling out the windows. A wall by its very nature is meant to keep certain things out and to keep certain things in. And I want you to think about this. Solomon describes this wall as being a barrier to keep people out. When a person is offended, it is natural, it is instinctive for them to push everybody else away, listen carefully, and to guard their offended heart. This is the reason, as we said, that victimhood has such a currency on it today. Because victimhood can be used as a drug that anesthetizes our sense of self-responsibility. A person can do anything they want if they're a victim and get away with it. And so it is very dangerous when a person feels offended. There is a great benefit to them, not a benefit in the overall well-being and spiritual health of the person, but an immediate benefit in them pushing people out and guarding that offense to the best of their ability. Can I, listen, let me just say it real simple. You may know what I mean. You ever been mad and not ready to get over it? And the problem was fixed and the person had apologized and everything that was ever going to be done about it had already been done about it. But you just sat there, crossed your arms and said, I'm sorry, I just ain't done being mad about it. Why is that our nature? Because when a person's offended, they build a wall to push everybody else away. Because the danger, if you let somebody in, is that they're going to topple your kingdom. And the same thing's true about the little kingdom of victimhood and offense that we all feel when we've been offended. We don't want to let nobody in because they might just change our situation. They might topple the hierarchy, the kingdom of of, uh, disenfranchisement and victimhood that we have created for ourselves. So we keep people out. But I'd remind you of this, that wall does go both ways. If a city is laid siege to... Now remember, in the analogy, the offended person is the city. They built a wall with their offense. But you and I that have done the offending, or we are perceived to be those that have committed the offending, we are on the outside and we are trying to win them. So what have we done? We've laid siege to their city. We've camped outside of it and said, I ain't going nowhere till this wall comes down. So this is not a city that a person can go in and out of freely. This is a city that they have become confined by. Let me say that a wall is a barrier to keep people out, but it's also a boundary to keep people in. The real danger there is we think we're doing them harm, and yet it's us that can't leave the city. This is why bitterness is such a dangerous thing. I've never seen anybody hurt by bitterness as much as a bitter person. I've never, I've never, bitterness is not a weapon that anyone can wield effectively. I've never seen anyone that was hurt by bitterness more than the person with bitterness in their heart. And Solomon describes it like the bars of a castle. Now, it could be he's merely talking about bars to keep people out. Could also be that he's talking about the bars that would be on the walls or on the windows of a castle in a place of prison, imprisonment and confinement. But one way or another, the, the reality holds true that if nobody can come in, nobody can go out. 
this city has laid siege to and it becomes a prison. Listen, I know, and this isn't at all how I anticipated this message going. But I know this, that when a person lets bitterness take root in their heart, it grabs hold of them. The Old Testament, we're told by, about a man by the name of Ahithophel. I've preached on this before, but Ahithophel was one of the counselors of David. And Ahithophel does something very strange. After Absalom launches a rebellion against his father David and expels David from the throne, Ahithophel, instead of going with David, he stays with Absalom. And he puts every ounce of his energies towards thwarting David and destroying him. In fact, he says he encourages Absalom to take his greatest warriors and pursue after David and let Ahithophel go with them. And Ahithophel says, I myself, I'll kill him if you'll let me. Strange language for a man that's been the close counselor of King David. Thankfully, God put a man by the name of Hushai there, the archite, who was another counselor and who was a friend of David's. And Hushai, he counsels against them doing this. He says, David's a mighty man of war, and if you follow after him, you're just walking into a trap. He'll kill you on the battlefield. And so Absalom, he listens because God deemed it so. He listens to the counsel of Hushai instead of the counsel of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel, when he hears this... Now, I've had some bad days at work before. I used to work a secular job. Even pastoring, you have rough days at times. You probably had bad days. Uh, listen, if a pastor quit every time somebody didn't take their counsel, he wouldn't make it five minutes. I've had bad days, but I've never done what Ahithophel did. He goes home, sets his house in order, and he hangs himself. Obviously, you know, I said earlier that rarely will a person uh, express what is truly bothering them. What was going on with Ahithophel? Well, if you read a little carefully in the Bible, you know, you'll find out that Ahithophel was not only connected to David through being his counselor, he was in fact also the grandfather-in-law of David. He is the grandfather of Bathsheba. I don't know about you, but I believe, and I believe heaven will bear this out, and I believe Scripture supports it, that Ahithophel never got over what David did to the happy home of Bathsheba and Uriah. He saw David take and, and take advantage of his granddaughter and murder her husband, and then saw his great-grandchild die under the judgment of God, and he never got over it. And I believe for years he waited for his opportunity, and this was his opportunity. And he put all of his eggs in that basket. And where does bitterness lead you? Where did it lead Ahithophel? It led him to the end of a rope. It didn't affect David. David comes back later and sits on his throne and dies in a good old age. Hithophel was the one that could bear his bitterness no longer and took his own life. Listen, be, being offended, there's a great currency on it, I know. And there's an immediate currency. There's a, there is a, a soothing, I was going to say cathartic, but a soothing effect that victimhood has. feels good to be offended sometimes because everybody caters to you and everybody dotes on you and everybody wonders how they can fix it. But it's a dangerous game to play. It's a dangerous game to play. I remind you of something very simply. I said it earlier in the message, but I'll mention it again. That there is a responsibility, and the responsibility, though, does not rely on the offended party. Look at verse 20 and 21. 
This is interesting that Solomon would go immediately from that in verse 19 to these two verses. But I don't think it's unconnected. He says, a man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth, and with the increase of his lips shall he be filled. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. They that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. See, I think that he begins by talking about the causes of the wall. What are some things that could cause a person to be offended? Then he talks about the confinement of the wall. It pushes others out. It holds us in. But I think finally, and I I don't think he's talking to the offended party. I think he's talking to those that have done the offending, or it's even perceived that they've done the offending. I think he reminds us of how the wall can be conquered. And he says the way it's going to be conquered is through the lips, through the words through the tongue. He mentions, to establish this fact, the power of the tongue. He says that a man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth, and with the increase of his lips shall he be filled. That the lips and tongue and mouth and words of a person have the capacity to sustain them in life. It has the ability to win the favor of those around them. It has the ability to enhance and advance them in business ventures. And a person that learns to wield their words well will generally do well. There's not a lot of vocations in life where you can get far without knowing how to talk to people. I've met people in life that were handicapped in the fact that they didn't know how to talk to people. They didn't have a bit of meanness in their heart. But they just couldn't talk to people. Didn't know how to do it the right way. They could compliment you and you'd feel like you'd been spit in the face of. But if a person learns how to talk, I've also met people in life that they could just about spit in your face, but they did it in such a kind way that you'd thank them for it. There's a lot of power in the ability to know how to talk to people. And let me say, when a person is offended, one of the first things we ought to see to is that we talk to them in the right way. I'll tell you right now why a lot of conflicts don't ever get reconciled. Because this is how the reconciling party approaches it. Well, I'm sorry if I've offended you. That's a way of saying, it's stupid that you're offended, but I've come to you anyway, because I'm such a grand person. You'd be amazed how, how well, if you just learn how to talk to people how to go to them and, and say something like this, I don't understand what I've done, but I love you so much that I want to understand it. And I care about you. And it hurts me that you're hurting. And I've probably done something because it's not beyond me to do something wrong. And if you'd share it with me, I'll do everything I can to try to fix it. Solomon reminds him of the ability to talk to someone goes a long way. Then look at the potential of the tongue. And I, I sort of preached on this. I won't look at it long. But he says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. They that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. We focus, or at least I did in reading that, what immediately caught my attention was that life is in the power of the tongue. And that's certainly true. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. But the Lord reminded me as I read that, that's not the only thing He says. He also says death is in the power of the tongue. How we approach someone, how we talk to them when they're offended and when we're trying to reconcile has both the ability... Listen, I said it earlier, sometimes it'd be in our best interest to hush. 
Sometimes people do more damage by talking. And hey, listen, uh, the, the Bible's clear that even a fool, when he keepeth his mouth, is deemed wise. And there's sometimes, and I've seen this, man, I've seen this working with couples and counseling people. I, I've seen times when, when the best thing that can happen would just be for everybody to just hush, take a moment. Sometimes what we say can make things worse, but it also has the potential to make things better. So we better con- consider carefully how we approach a person. One final thought I want to give you. I've been getting at this all night, but I'm, I'm going to finally preach it. I want you to think not only about the power and about the potential, but I want you to think about the prerogative. Listen, it's not the job of the person in the city to throw down their own walls when a person... It is only natural, listen carefully, it is only natural if an invading force comes and tries to win the city. It is only natural. Everybody in that city may be rascals, viles, contemptuous people uh, that deserve to be cast down, that deserve to be destroyed, but it would be completely illogical to expect them to cast down their own wall. And herein lies the problem. When there's a conflict, we want the offended person to fix it. And we may say, well, preacher, I didn't do anything wrong. You may not have. But you could know more and should know more, expect them to reconcile the conflict than you would for the person on the inside of the city to open their gates and forfeit their city. It's irrational. He says a brother offended is harder to be won. That means that we need to be trying to win them. The prerogative is on you and me to try to reconcile that situation. I was reminded of a passage. I was looking it up very quickly before the message tonight. In Matthew chapter number 5, I want to read it to you. It's just three verses. The Lord in the Sermon on the Mount, He's talking about conflict and He's talking about the danger of offense. And He says this in verse 23, Therefore, if I bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest, listen carefully, there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. does not say, there rememberest that thou hast aught against thy brother. If that was the case, wouldn't nobody ever offer any sacrifices? Because there's always something to be offended about. No, it says, if you have offended him, if he has ought against you, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. He says this, listen carefully, agree with thine adversary. He doesn't say, make your adversary agree with you. He says, agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into the prison. Listen, you may not feel, you may feel like the person's being irrational and being offended. They might be. You may feel like you've not done anything wrong. That may be true. But the person offended is not going to reconcile the situation. It's going to take the offending party to do it. The prerogative is on you and me. That wall has to be breached. You might say, well, preacher, what if I can never breach it? If you've done everything you can, then you ought to sleep with a clear conscience. But you better be honest, because the Lord knows whether you've done everything you can or not. And you ought to do everything within your power to try to reconcile that thing. It's not fair, preacher. We ain't talking about fair. We're talking about what's expedient. Paul said, all things are lawful in me, but not all things are expedient. In other words, he's saying this, there's a lot of things I could get away with that ain't good for me. 
You might be able to get away with it, but that don't mean it's good for you. It don't mean it's good for them. If there's a conflict, you ought to desire, you ought to endeavor to try to reconcile that situation. Preacher, it's going to be hard. Yeah, it's going to be harder than a strong city. But by the by knowing how to talk to somebody the right way in kindness and humility and by prioritizing peace above justice, by being... Aren't you glad the Lord prioritized peace? I won't say that He prioritized it above justice, but He prioritized it up there with justice. And He paid the price of God's justice so that you and I could enjoy God's peace. He prioritized peace. And in doing so, I believe we can breach that wall. I believe that we can get into a person's heart. I believe that we can get past that wall. And I believe we can see some reconciliation take place.